In 2003, the Wall Street Journal published a compelling piece on the perils of what is called maximum effort weightlifting. They told the story of Michael Logan, and I quote, As a fitness trainer and health fanatic, Michael Logan knew that weightlifting would strengthen his bones and protect his heart. What he didn't know was that it could be lethal. Mr. Logan had a bulge in his primary artery, the aorta. Knowledge of that bulge or aneurysm would have prompted doctors to allow only lightweight lifting. But like the vast majority of people with aneurysms, Mr. Logan didn't know he had one. So he continued weightlifting until an aortic aneurysm killed him last June at the age of 46. It's very surprising that something he did for his health might have hurt him, says the late Chicago trainer's son. The Wall Street Journal article went on by saying heavy weightlifting can spike blood pressure to dangerous heights. In maximum effort lifting, Studies have shown that blood pressure rises to as high as 370 over 360 from a resting rate of 130 over 80. Conventional blood pressure monitors can't even measure levels above 300. At that level, nobody would be surprised if you had a stroke, says one health Professional And the Wall Street Journal goes on by saying doctors have long suspected that the steep blood pressure spikes arising from heavy weight lifting could trigger ruptures of already weakened vessels. Now suspicion is growing that such lifting can damage healthy vessels. Wow. And if there was ever a word that raises the blood pressure of a congregation enough to cause a spiritual aneurysm, it is the word perfection. How do you feel when we talk about Christian perfection? Someone said perfect. The reality is that there are some who are straining under the crushing weight of trying to be, quote, perfect Christians. And could it be that we are lifting a burden that God has never called us to bear? Jesus said, to come to him, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Biblical perfection is not a call to self-righteousness. It is a call to claim Christ's righteousness. And I want to quote this from the book Steps to Christ, page 63. Our only ground of hope is in the righteousness of Christ imputed to us in that wrought by His Spirit working in and through us. And as we're going through our series, today's our last installment of our three-part series of messages that we've called Blessed Assurance. And we use this analogy of a child, if you were to run through this church naked and dirty, what would be your first response? Grab a towel, right? Grab a coat. Your first response is to cover the child. And then, as you have opportunity, give the child a bath. 
you cover, and then you cleanse. That's the way that Jesus deals with us. He covers us with his robe of righteousness and declares us righteous. We are perfect in him, and then we go to the bathtub for cleansing, and that bathtub experience, I should say the bath, it's a long bath. It's the work of a lifetime. And the beauty of the gospel is that you are secure in Christ as soon as you are covered. Amen? You're declared righteous, you're saved, and as long as you're in that relationship with Him, you go through that cleansing process, and as we said last week, it's not about how far you get, it's about how being, how about staying in the process, and that is the beauty of the gospel. Now, when we talk about perfection, there are two aspects of it that should not be confused. When He covers you with His robe of righteousness, you are perfect in Christ. Amen? You are covered. And when Jesus sees you, He doesn't see you. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You are perfect in Him. This is the imputed righteousness of Christ, and it has nothing to do with who we are or what we are prior to that point. He covers you. You are declared righteous. God sees you. He doesn't see you. Praise the Lord. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You are perfect in Him. I love this quote from Our High Calling, page 51. The sinner's defects are covered by the perfection and fullness of the Lord our righteousness. It's totally outside of us. It is God's perfection that covers you, and He sees the perfection of Christ. Hallelujah. You are perfect in Him. This is the security that we have, the existential peace that we can have in Jesus in our Christian experience as we walk with Him, that it is His robe, not our robe, that is our security. And by embracing and accepting the righteousness of Christ imputed to us by faith, we can have peace because it's never about our vision of ourselves. It's believing by faith God's vision of us because of His robe of righteousness. That is perfection in justification. Now, when we talk about this notion of character perfection in sanctification, the cleansing process, He covers us, then we go through a cleansing process and character perfection is not static, it's not absolute, it is relative perfection. And as we said last week in the book Christ Object Lessons, page 65, at every stage of development, our life may be, what does it say? Our life may be perfect, yet if God's purpose for us is fulfilled, there will be continual advancement. Sanctification is the work of a lifetime. You can be perfect at every stage a perfect baby, a perfect adolescent, a perfect adult. It's not about how far you get. It's about being in the process. Now, praise God, the thief on the cross is just as saved as someone that has been a Christian for 40, 50 years. It's not about reaching a state, a nirvana. It's about being in the process. It is the justification, the robe, that is our security. 
Moving on, our characters are not set times and occasions, but by the spirit and trend of the whole life. The character is revealed not by occasional good deeds and occasional misdeeds, but by the tendency of the habitual words and acts. The perfection of his character shines through them. And this is what sanctification is. By the grace of God, as we walk with Jesus, covered with his robe, Jesus begins a process, and it is a process, where his grace, his love, shines through us. It is a process of reproducing the character of Jesus in you and me to be reflected to the world. That's the beauty of the gospel. And I praise God that I can look back on my Christian experience. I was just as saved the moment I accepted him, but as I've journeyed with him, by the grace of God, there has been a refinement that took place and is taking place in my life. Now, as I look to Jesus, I'm nowhere near where I need to be, but I praise God, I look back, I'm nowhere near where I was. It's a continuum, a process. I praise God I'm a lot more happier and easier to live with today by the grace of God. And his character is is beginning to form in you and I in this process of sanctification. Now, as we talk about sanctification, can we ever claim perfection? Can I say, look, I've been a Christian for 50 years, been in the church, study the Sabbath school lesson every week, faithful in my stewardship, volunteer, I've arrived. Oh, come on now, have mercy. Look at this, Acts of the Apostles, page 561 through 562. Let the recording angels write the history of the holy struggles and conflicts of his people, of the people of God. Let them record their prayers and tears. Let not God be dishonored by the declaration from human lips, I am sinless. I am holy. Sanctified lips will never give utterance to such presumptuous words. The closer you come to Christ the more faulty you will appear in your own eyes. Your vision will be clearer, and your imperfections will be seen in distinct contrast to his perfect character. Be not discouraged. This is an evidence that Satan's delusions are losing their power. The closer you come to Jesus, the more distinct will be our unworthiness, and it is by claiming the merits of Jesus that we can have security. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus. But as we keep our eyes on Jesus, it keeps us in a mindset of humility. We will never feel perfect. Let me say that again. We'll never feel it existentially. You should never feel it. You should never get to the place you say, oh, I wish that all men were as I am. That is not a good place to be. (laughs) Because we started the Christian walk with the robe, with his righteousness. 
And we keep that robe on through the process of sanctification. It is never our merits. It's always His. So there is this dichotomy in the Christian experience. Yes, from heaven's eyes, you're perfect. You're growing in grace because of Christ's righteousness. And it is about God's vision of us, not our vision of ourselves. And we choose to believe in God's vision of us by faith, but we will never, ever say those words or feel in any sense perfect. Actually, the Apostles 5.61, none of the apostles and prophets ever claim to be without sin. They have put no confidence in the flesh, have claimed no righteousness of their own, but have trusted wholly in the righteousness of Christ. So will it be with all who behold Christ. The nearer we come to Jesus and the more clearly we discern the purity of His character, the more clearly shall we see the exceeding sinfulness of sin, and the less shall we feel like exalting ourselves. In summary, perfection has everything to do with God's vision of us because of His imputed and imparted righteousness. Perfection has nothing to do with our human view of ourselves nor any self-awareness of perfection. Through faith and acceptance of His righteousness, we choose to believe that God's vision of us is what He says it is. We are complete in Him. God is not calling us to a self-righteousness. He's calling us to His righteousness. And as we think about claiming Christ's righteousness and the implications of what that means, there comes this question, what about works? What about the luggage, right? The things that we stock up, all of the good things that we do. Where do works come in to the equation of the Christian experience? What is the place of, of works? All these things in accoutrements that we, that we do for the church, volunteering, are they essential? Are they meritorious? Do they pay for something? Do they not pay for something? Are they required or not required? And we want to just have a little bit of a reflection on this notion of works. All right, what, what are works? What are they anyway? And Jesus in John chapter 15 verse 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Notice that Jesus did not say, focus on fruit manufacturing. He didn't say that. Produce fruit. Make fruit. Manufacture fruit. Fruit Manufacturing should be your business. Jesus did not say any of that. Jesus said, look, your focus is to abide in me and I in you. That is the focus of a Christian. And as we abide in Jesus, fruit, fruits are the natural byproduct of a relationship with Christ. It's like asking 
how do you grow hair? Well, you don't grow hair by thinking about it. You don't get up every day and say, okay, I got to grow my hair three millimeters today. It doesn't work like that, at least what I've been told. Growing hair is a natural byproduct of living, healthful living. And these are the fruits of the Spirit. You're connected to Jesus, and the fruits of the Spirit come out in the character in the life and, and, and form the background for our deeds. Here are the fruits, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, which is self-control, against such there is no law. These are the fruits of the Spirit. Being connected to Jesus, these are the things that Jesus, by His Spirit, reflects in us so that we can be a reflection of Christ's love to the world. We need people in the world that are connected to Jesus that have these fruits. Amen? Loving Christians. Peaceful Christians. Patient Christians. Gentle Christians. Good Christians by His grace. Faithful. Meek. And Christians with self-control. The book of James goes into the deeds in James chapter 1 verse 27 to look after the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now Charles Spurgeon, the great English evangelist, classifies works into the following categories. He says works of obedience, works of love, works of faith, and acts of the common life. One person expanded Charles Spurgeon's classification of works. He said, by works of obedience, Spurgeon means obeying the commands of Scripture. Works of love includes both love for God and love for our fellow man with an eye to the glory of God. Works of faith refer to all that we do in reliance upon God's promises and by common acts of life. He meant whatever we do at home, work, traveling, or on a sickbed, we do all to the glory of God. There's this notion in Scripture of Jesus being our Savior and our Lord. When we accept Jesus as our Savior, there is a response that takes place in our hearts because of gratitude. And we say, Lord, whatever it is you want me to do, I will do. Now, we need to get those in the right order. (laughs) Jesus is Savior first, and then our response is, Lord, whatever it is you want me to do, I will do. When you get the order backwards or you leave out the first part, it can become a miserable experience. You haven't accepted Christ as your Savior. How can He be your Lord? And here, Colossians is talking about the sanctification experience Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So these are works. Works have to do with the character. Works have to do with helping people, with ministering to the sick, clothing the naked, helping the fatherless and the widows. These are all works. 
And here's the question. What do they earn? What do they pay for? How meritorious are they? As we heard in our reflections in our service, like, I, I, how, how valuable are these? What do they pay for? Are they meritorious? And as we read in our scripture reading, the answer is a thunderous no in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10. For by grace have you been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It is a gift. The definition of a gift is that you can't pay for it. Once you try to pay for it, it is no longer a gift. If gift is supposed to be received, no earning, no payment. Want to read a few statements? Faith and works, page 23 and 24. And any works that man can render to God will be far less than, what does it say? Nothingness. My requests are made acceptable only because they are laid upon Christ's righteousness. Now, process this with me. This means that even the works that God does through us, because everything we do is because of God working, even our decision to surrender to God is because of prevenient grace. We only have a choice because of God. But when you process this, everything we do, our offering to God, our response to God, our ministry for God, all of these things still need the righteousness of Christ. They don't count for anything. They, they still need Christ's merits. They are nothing. Oh, that all may see that everything in obedience, obedience, in penitence, in praise, what we've been doing this morning, in praise and thanksgiving, must be placed upon the glowing fire of the righteousness of Christ. Everything we do is not meritorious. They need to be perfumed with the righteousness of Christ to be acceptable. If you would gather together everything that is good and holy and noble and lovely in man and then present the subject to the angels of God as acting a part in the salvation of the human soul or in merit, the proposition would be rejected as treason. Why is it that God has framed salvation in a way so that everything we do is not meritorious. It doesn't pay for anything. It doesn't earn anything. It still needs to be mingled with the righteousness of Christ. It is nothing without His righteousness. And I think that one of the reasons is that we would get into a meritorious, comparison, egotistical, anthropocentric frame of performance-driven theology. Right? I've done more works than you. I mean, we're so used to this merit system, right? I got more stars by my name. How you doing on your works this week? Hmm. Hmm. Someday you'll be a gold star medallion like me. Poor thing, you've only been Christian for a few months. Someday you'll get as many stars as me. And look at this. This is the meritorious frame. 
Jesus, Luke chapter 18, verse 10 and 11, two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. The other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. Listen to this. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people. Have mercy. <laughs> I'm not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. Then he looks next to himself and sees the IRS agent that's been embezzling money. Looks over to him and says, and certainly not like that tax collector. Woo! Talk about meritorious framework. He said, I've got the bags. I've got the credentials. You've got all these things. This is a very just performance-driven angle to the place where you say, look, I'm up here and you're down here and we can get to the blasphemous place of actually going to God and saying, I thank you, Lord, that I am not like that person. Woo. And Jesus ends with the punchline. I tell you, the sinner, the IRS agent, the embezzler, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. The Reformation was a categorical rejection of meritorious works. Categorical repudiation of our works amounting to anything. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2 talks about this mentality of performance-driven, anthropocentric, comparison, paradigm relating to if you can call it that, the Christian experience, when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves among themselves, they are not wise. It's a dangerous place we can be because in the Seventh-day Adventist church, we have a lot of standards. Please don't misunderstand me. I believe in standards. I believe in service. But these things are not a checklist of merit that increase our value before God? Absolutely not. The Bible is very clear on this. John Piper says, Our inheritance is not earned by our lived-out righteousness, but belonging to the family and being an heir is confirmed by it. It is not earned, but it is confirmed. Good works are indispensable to salvation, not as a grounds or means, says John Stott, however, but as a consequence and evidence. Remember we talked about abide in me and you will bear much fruit. It's a consequence. It's evidence. And so we come to the question, if works do not earn salvation, then what's the point? <laughs> and some of us, uh, if you're honest, it's kind of like, oh, well, <laughs> if I'm paid for anything, why should I do anything? We live in a free market, capitalistic society, right? If it doesn't count, well, I don't want to do it. It's kind of like that assignment in class where the teacher says, look, you won't get any credit, but you should do it because you will learn. <laughs> Remember those days, right? And I said, ah, why waste my time? <laughs> I'm going to go play. Well, 
why, why should we do it? It doesn't earn anything. It's not meritorious. It doesn't pay for anything. Salvation's a gift. Then why, pray tell, are we so... Uh, are we talking about works in the first place? Pastor, this is, a, this is a, a sermon that you should not even waste time on. Why are we talking about this? Well, here, here's one reason. There's a myriad of reasons here. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. You know, works are not for us. They're for other people. People see a reflection of Jesus through us, they're touched when we're generous. They're touched when you clothe the naked and feed the poor and stop on that street corner to minister to that person that doesn't have a home. They see the reflection of Christ in and through you. And we as Christians have the awesome privilege of not only receiving grace from God, but also reflecting grace to other people. What an awesome privilege of being the hands and the feet of Jesus that after we've come to Christ just as we are and He touches us with His grace, fills us with His Spirit, and we are filled with awe and gratitude for something that we did not deserve, Jesus says, now go and do likewise. Amen. And as you go out into the community and we give a glimpse of Jesus Christ to others, they say, praise God, there is a God. Amen. Praise God, there is a God because you did something for me that I did not deserve. I did not pay for. Praise his name. Amen. One of the questions that people have asked is, why should I do any works if it doesn't earn anything? Going back to our original question. And it's kind of like asking, um, what's the point of bringing a flower to your wife? <laughs> now, there's, that's very complex. <laughs> Sometimes it may be appeasement. <laughs> But the true altruistic motivation for doing something for your spouse is love. Amen? You never want to be in a relationship where you're doing a, a meritorious, performance-driven marriage. That, that's awful. Imagine every day you got a checklist out. All right, you did one for me. Do one for you. Oh, you're running behind, honey. On the scale. But... But what makes marriage so beautiful is the fact that we do things for our spouse with our sinful fallenness out of love. Love. Not even expecting something in return at the altruistic height of what a marriage can be, doing something for your spouse, expecting nothing in return just because. Amen? Just because you love them. You do things for them. Not because it's earning you anything, but because you 
love your spouse. And everything, all of your acts are through that lens. Makes all the difference in the world. You can be doing the exact same thing. One in a meritorious paradigm and the other in a love paradigm. It looks the same from an external angle. Hey, they're doing the same thing. But I want to tell you, the experience of one feels like slavery. And the experience of of the other is total freedom. Same externals, different experience. I love this quote from 1 John chapter 3, verse 22. Listen to this. And receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what is, what does it say on the screen? And do what pleases him. Notice that this text doesn't end with just obeying his commands, but it talks about what pleases him. In other words, in a relationship, it's not just about minimums. How many of you would assign the marriage certificate with your spouse if they said, honey, I want to marry you, but I want to get this straight right before, uh, what is the absolute minimum in this relationship? Absolute bottom line minimum, nothing more, just the basic minimum. I want to know the bottom line, nothing more, and then I will sign. Would you have had second thoughts before signing that document? (laughs) Yeah, probably, because a a relationship is not just about minimums. Ah, if you love somebody, it's not about minimums. What if I came home one day and this is a hypothetical scenario. This is not reality, just so you know. Came home one day and I said, honey, oh, my wife said, honey, I'm really tired today. Uh, uh, can you finish up the dishes for me? And I say, honey, um, do I have to? Oh, watch out. Is this a deal breaker? Is this a divorce issue? Come on now. And she's like, of course not. I mean, what, what are you talking about? I mean, what, um, of course not. And then I say, well, then I don't want to do it. <laughs> I don't want to do it. If it's not a deal breaker, if it's not a divorce issue, woo, I don't want to do it. All right. Go to the next day. Honey, uh, uh, I'm really tired today. And c- could, you, could you take out the trash for me? I say, honey, uh, Is this a deal breaker? Is this a divorce issue? How would that marriage be? How how long is that going to last? Woman. (laughs) Lord, Lord have mercy. Wow. You know, God has feelings too. Remember that. We're, We're in a relationship with God. He has feelings. And what God wants is not an arbitrary relationship where we have to do anything. But when we are filled with grace, there is a response that that just fills our soul and we say, Lord, you have done so much for me. 
I love you so much. And it's driven not by fear, not by because I have to, not because of merit, but because of, of love. And we say, Lord, whatever it is you want me to do, what pleases you, above and beyond, not because I have to, but because of what you've done for me, because you gave it all, Lord, here I am. Makes all the difference in the world, amen? All the difference in the world. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, and so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God. Why? Because of all he has done for you. This always needs to be in our frame, amen? As we appreciate, as we dwell upon God's goodness for us, and that's, that's what we, we need to focus on, not this. You know, this is a natural byproduct. But as we focus on Jesus, His love for us, the revelation of the character of Christ through His life and through Calvary, and as we meditate on this, as we abide in Christ, there is a natural response that fills up in our souls, and we say, Lord, here I am. Here I am. Let me be your hands and feet to touch people's lives around us. And as we look at Jesus, as we fall in love with Jesus, the works of grace to our community and beyond will will flow from God through us to the people around us. Amen? Let's bow our heads as we pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, what a gift. We thank you for grace, unmerited, undeserved. Father, we have been just filled with gratitude for what you've done for us. And we thank you that it is from this vision that you have called us with the privilege of reflecting grace to those around us, not because we're earning anything, not because it's meritorious, not because it's performance-driven, but because we love Jesus. You've called us to love our neighbor as ourselves. You've called us to clothe the naked, to feed the hungry, to minister to the widows and the oppressed and the impoverished of society. You've called us to be your hands and feet not because of merit, but because of grace. Freely offered, freely received, and freely reflected. Bless us, we pray, here at the Hillside O'Malley Church. We pray that this vision of Jesus would never leave our hearts and that as we abide in you, that we will bear fruit by your grace and by your spirit working through us. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.